Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time, and we learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringnas, and today we'll be talking about leadership in the new digital age, standing out as a company in an information-saturated world, and the value of human touch in a world of automation. We are talking to Dr. Kjell Nordström, described as a revolutionary interpreter of the new business world. He is ranked number 23 by the Global Guru's top 30 management worldwide and among the top Five in Europe. Kjell has over 20 years of experience in global economics and is the co-author of several books such as Funky Business, Talent Makes Capital Dance, and Karaoke Capitalism, Management for Mankind. And perhaps if that was not enough, he is one of the world's best public speakers. Welcome, Kjell. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was quite a build-up. Of course. Well, uh, no pressure, but uh, we like to kick off this podcast uh, with a few questions to get the listeners to allow them to get to know you better. What's your morning routine? My morning routine? Uh Usually it's waking up slowly. Um, I'm not like a kid. You know, kids start very like they open their eyes and they go like, (laughs) wah! I don't. I take it rather easy in the morning. I don't like to be under pressure. Not at all. Okay. Uh, and I guess you do this more than anyone else, but when was the last time you felt like you stepped out of your comfort zone? On stage today, for example, together with Richard Quest, because we had decided to have a little bit of an intellectual MMA fight on stage. Oh, wow. Which means that we did just agree that we should disagree on stage nonstop for 10, 12 minutes. And that's quite difficult to do. You have an argument in uh- public. And especially with uh, Mr. Quest, I mean, he is uh, very agreeable but disagreeable. He's he's very agreeable and disagreeable in a mix. And we decided to try that out today. And it was a load of fun, I should say. A load of fun it was. But to take opposite positions. So who won? You have to ask the audience. There were 2,000 judges in the room. (laughs) Okay. So, Shell, you're a business guru. And I had the pleasure of speaking to you for a few minutes yesterday. And I can tell already then that your mind thinks a bit differently. And you're very full of this vibrant, kind of crazy cool energy. And I came home and then a quick Google search proved my suspicion. (laughs) You are described globally as not your typical business guru guru, with words such as revolutionizing and amusing and educational, enthusiastic, informal, interactive, passionate, storytelling, (laughs) thought-provoking, a new generation of rock star speakers. Tell me, what is the story? How did you go from the Stockholm School of Economics, where you have a doctoral degree, mm-hmm. to becoming a rock star speaker touring more than 100 countries? If you go for one simple explanation, I married a singer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she was uh, a performer, which means that she was on a stage. That was her job. Uh, I had my scientific background, but I, of course, toured the world together with Katharina. And I could see all of a sudden the world from the perspective of a stage. And I could also see how much effort Katharina or any of her colleagues were putting into saying two sentences in between two songs and that they could spend hours on those two sentences. And I went like, shit, they prepare themselves and they really prepare themselves and they rehearse and they do a lot of things that we have no tradition whatsoever in doing in academia. Mm. I decided to borrow the whole shebang, 
from entertainment and bring it into my own world and that the rest is history. So copy with pride. Copy with pride and rehearse with pride. So you do rehearse a lot because I think the best speakers, they seem like they never rehearse because it comes so naturally to them and they're just stars on stage, but then we know that there's a lot of work behind. That's And then you know that there is, per definition, a lot of work behind. Otherwise, it comes over as a little bit staccato and a little bit let me see now and like uh, from the top, you know. And if there is a flow, usually it's rehearsed. So... I mean, when you do a new talk, how many times have you typically rehearsed that? Between three to ten, depending on how long the talk is and how new it is for myself. So if I have written something that is completely new, then it's usually more like ten times. If it's something that is a derivative or similar to something I've done before, then it's probably enough with three or four times. So at the time of this podcast, we're at the Oslo Business Forum, and you've just spoken, and the theme today is digital leadership. And I read that, in your opinion, the role of the leader in the new age is to strike a balance between when there should be control and when you should let go, that leadership is very much an art form. Yes. But when you hear the concept digital leadership, which is basically the theme here today, what do you think? What is is that to you? It is to me the fact that we can be more human than ever in our time, interestingly enough, because the machines will take over a number of rather boring assignments that we have been surrounded by for for ages. And all of a sudden, we stand there in the middle, naked and human. Mm -hmm. And, And now, and for the foreseeable future, I think we can be more human than ever. And that's the good news with robotization and digitization that the machines will work side by side with us and take over some of the stuff that you and I would, uh, and most human beings, by the way, would find tedious, ridiculous, um, not very motivating or inspiring. Hmm. This the machines can and will do for us. And they're already doing it. But um, give it four or five years and uh, any architect, any lawyer will work side by side with a machine. Just like an airline pilot today. Because the airline pilots of SAS or any other company, they work side by side with the machines. But they are there to monitor the machines, of course. So that's interesting. So digital leadership is actually just being a more human leader or getting out the more human parts of your employees? Remarkably enough. It seems like it works the other way around. The more machines we bring in, the more human we can be. So uh, in a world of information overload and so many brands and so many companies and basically so many friends and people and family and everything that wants to catch our attention all the time, mm-hmm. how does a company differentiate themselves and catch the eye or our eyes basically? And can a company engage everyone or does a company need to just engage kind of a niche or choose their niche and do it really, really well in order to succeed in this age of information overload? Probably we will in business see an era where we go more tribal. And that's an anthropolo- from anthropology, basically, the concept of being tribal. And a tribe shares something at a, at a rather fundamental level. It could be a value system or an idea or you have something in common that is greater than what you actually do on a daily basis. Hells Angels is a tribe. It happens to be an evil tribe, but it's anyway a tribe. And they systematically hire people for attitude. That's the key thing. When they want to bring someone on board, it's their attitude. 
it's not the skills, it's not the training they have, it's not whether they have been members of bandidos before. That's not really relevant. It's the attitude that stands center stage. Companies will do more of this. We will go tribal. And once we go tribal, that also means that you communicate to people that share the same kind of values. They, you go tribal in both directions, so to say. Hmm. Um, and, and values. I mean, values, human values, uh, the value that we all have on like the, the human compassion and all these things that are very innately human, which values are in many ways, right? Yes, they are. But then everything is now focused on technology and digitization and automation and robotization. And it seems like a lot of businesses are actively striving to basically become less human more robotic yes it without looks, maybe knowing it without maybe knowing it but it looks like that from the outside at, at, at a quick glance you go like wow the machines are taking over you're checking in with the machine that here at guide the because you usually are i guess yeah, you yeah, too yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> it's faster right yeah it's faster and it's more smooth you prefer the machine mm -hmm. and i prefer the machine today seven o'clock in the morning i'm not i don't need to have a talk with someone <laughs> that is under pressure and stand in the line i prefer the machine and the machine will do a good job for me so happily i have accepted the machines this does not mean that the leadership of sas the airline company will be less human because the residual work, what is left for the human beings, as I said earlier, will be more human than ever. The complex assignments will be there for human beings. Take a bank. You can do most of the banking services today using a computer or a hand or a smartphone. Of course you can. But if you go into divorce or if you marry or if you are going to buy your first house, then you need to see a person. Most of us need to do that to sort out the complexities, the legal issues, and what have you. And now, it's not a friendly machine that can do it for us. Because, why not? Because it's not a standardized assignment. This requires what we in science call general intelligence. What the machines can do is called specific intelligence. Playing chess, specific intelligence. Analyzing an X-ray of your lungs, specific intelligence. But then, there are, in every area, general intelligence like, hmm, should we take an X-ray of the lungs or of the brain? That's general intelligence based on a diagnosis, and you can see the rest. I can, but... Uh I mean, there is a lot of talk of uh, us reaching general intelligence also in the area of artificial intelligence, not just being narrow, but also general, going into the super intelligence and yes. the singularity and all yes. of that. How do, you, how do you feel about that? I mean, if business leaders talk to you about that, do you, do you kind of say, well, that's a long time, don't think about it? Or I'm not so worried about it for two reasons. Number one, machines can't be fun. <laughs> and number two, machines can't be wrong. They can't do things wrong. And since they can't do things wrong, they can't be fun. These two are connected. Because if you look at a clown or if you look at things that are fun, it's usually something that goes wrong. And then it becomes all of a sudden fun. That's basically comedy. That's the principle of comedy. But the third component in this is that things that go wrong or the possibility that things can go wrong is also the mother of all invention. You cannot do... In, you cannot create, you cannot innovate without the option of things going completely wrong. And I really mean completely wrong. You know, the, the, the place explodes or, or, or people are even killed in certain cases. But at least you took a step for humanity forward. 
might it be with a new pharmaceutical or exploring space or what have you, but we have to accept that it can, and in many cases will, go wrong. Machines are not very good at that. They are not good at doing things wrong. They are good at doing things right. We should be happy for that. Because we can leave to them to do the things that are within the frame of right. But the moment when it comes to creation, art, poetry, music, the unexpected, fun, then it's us. Well, so there's, you probably saw this as well, that there is a new uh, music program where you can basically allow artificial intelligence to create music from scratch that's basically based on whatever kind of music you like and you can tailor it and then there was there was an artist I the the name uh, slips my mind right now but I think it's DJ Amper or something like that yes uh, I mean that's music and it's it's completely generated by artificial intelligence I mean isn't that kind of a, a, a taste of what's coming in terms of because we, we keep thinking that you know okay art is what's going to be innate for us us humans but then you suddenly start seeing machines moving into that as well just like flying you work side by side with the machine however what the machine probably will not do if you check uh, music history is doing john cage 442 what is 442 442 is a piece of music composed by mr john cage and it's a mix of long and short silence for four minutes and 42 seconds. Try to do that and ask your machine to do that. Well, I don't, don't you think you can, though? I mean, isn't that, isn't that how they learn? They learn from exactly what we do, and then they kind of optimize based on what we like and what we yeah, give them positive do, impacts but on. But do you like silence when you go to a concert? This is doing the unexpected, and some people would say it's even weird. And they said at the time that it was weird when he composed 442. He was a music philosopher and, and a composer. Because he was saying that, well, look, music is a mix of silence and sound. If it's a mix of silence and sound, there is obviously short silence and long silence. Let's see if I could compose something out of silence then, so I could have long silence and short silence, and then you could compose 442. We shouldn't dig too much into that. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying that a machine will have some problems to do that mm-hmm. because that requires brutal experimentation, total failure, because you would go like the machine is silent. Yeah, but he has composed something. Has he? But it's silent. Uh, but that's the composition. Can you see the problem? It's, it's, it's like I, I can, but I, I would still argue that there are a lot of inventions that we earlier thought that machines could never be able to do. Uh, for example, self-driving cars. I mean, people said for 50 years ago that that would never be able to be possible, and today we're seeing them everywhere. Uh, and I think that perhaps the same is true for a lot of the other things that we keep saying that, well, this a robot will never be able to do. But uh, we don't have to go further into that unless we can have do one more add. thing, which yeah? is fun, because most people have Netflix. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is, a, is an algorithm, just like any other algorithm. An algorithm is basically a specification of what happens if you, do, you press cappuccino and then you get cappuccino. That's an algorithm there in the coffee machine. Yeah. You press Homeland and then you get Homeland, Netflix because the algorithm is kind enough to deliver Homeland. And then the algorithm goes like, aha, you like Homeland, therefore you probably like this and this and this and this, and you get those propositions. So there is the algorithm, the Netflix algorithm, and you are watching that algorithm. But the algorithm is, of course, watching you. 
So it's two algorithms. You are a bio-algorithm that is watching a machine algorithm. And we, in a way, compete with each other. And of course, the machine algorithm will win when it comes to memory, what you have seen, when you saw it, all these things that you and I cannot and should not, by the way, remember, because we shouldn't memorize crap. <laughs> we, should, we should not. And nature has been kind enough to fix that. So uh -huh. we don't have to memorize a lot of crap. We keep the more important things in, in our head. A bio-algorithm algorithm will do that. Uh, but that leaves us, we are a kind of a defunct version of an algorithm, you could say. Netflix is perfect, remembers everything. Mm -hmm. Exactly when you saw it, at what moment in time, if you took a pause, if you went to do something for two minutes, it's all there. You, me, defunct algorithms go like, I don't know, I, Homeland, I didn't like it very much. But you have seen 42. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't like it anyway. Because we're defunct. And that's the point, that we are defunct. And as long as the machines can't be as defunct as us, we have a little domain that is purely human. Because we can crash cars. The algorithms increasingly don't crash any cars. That's why we find them so interesting, potentially. You know, that's that a good thing, no? That's a good thing. Yeah. But it's very human to crash things. Cars, airplanes, uh, marriages. We crash things. So, basically, we want to keep the world more human so that we can continue to make mistakes. Well, you can turn it the other way around. We will continue to make mistakes, which means that the world will be human. Yeah, but then the question is, do we want... A, a world full of mistakes. I guess we do. I mean, if yeah, you, we do. it's ethically wrong to say that you don't. But then when you think about all the things that if, if I mean, your argument is that the, the things that are innately human is that we do make a lot of mistakes and we crash things and we fail marriages and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. are these things? Yeah, I don't know. It's if like, if uh, it was you personally, would you want it to happen to you personally? I mean, you want it to be in the world, but would you want something like that? happen to you personally or someone you love? You know, this is interesting because the question has, of course, been asked several times because I have kids, whether I would put them under risk. And the answer is, I try to as much as I can, except the fact that they do things that I can foresee is not a good idea. But I also know that they have to do it and they have to crash and they have to come back from the crash with a little bit of a learning. They can't do things right the first time for obvious reasons neither with their relationship or with their studies or with, with anything they do. And I have to keep, sit on my hands, as you say in English, and go like, not say anything here. Yeah. Even if, if I can see, this is so weird. <laughs> okay. This is so weird. And now he, because it's a he, um, both are he's, they are doing things exactly wrong. All experience tells me that it's wrong. But... Then comes the interesting and intriguing thing. Occasionally, it's right. And I am wrong. Because uh, society has changed, new technology has uh, seen uh, the light, and, and all of a sudden what I, in my perception, perceive to be exactly wrong comes out as interesting. Interesting. So that's the weird... You know, many of the great inventions like Penicillin antibiotics, you remember from your when you studied? By chance. A fuck-up in a laboratory in England. A drop, 
at a place where it shouldn't be, and all of a sudden that mistake, total human mistake, transpires to be the greatest pharmaceutical innovation ever, because antibiotics is the biggest one. Uh, absolutely, but then, came out of a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. But then also you see, you know, these, for example, algorithms and artificial intelligence and stuff are suddenly able to see patterns and test things that we were never able to before, and then again be able to kind of solve things in completely new ways that turn absolutely. out to be more efficient than what we've been doing for for centuries. I love them and I like them. The algorithms are kind of wouldn't call them friends because I'm not sure that you can be friend with an algorithm. Well, not yet. Maybe not yet, <laughs> maybe. but maybe later. Yeah. Uh, you get those sex dolls or something like that. But <laughs> I'm not sure that, uh, you know, you can probably do certain things with these dolls. But then there is at least, uh, there is a few components left for us human beings. I don't think we should worry too much about it because we are, techne, technology means we are firstly a playing type of animal. We play. We've always played. And number two, we have always played with things, a stone to open a nut. We have tried to leverage our capabilities. I'm not so strong, but with a stone I will be stronger. Then I can crush this nut or what have you. And then we have improved and improved and improved and improved. I can't communicate, I can't yell and scream, you can't hear me for more than 100 meters, I, I will fix this, I will do a little thing here called a telephone or whatever. And now I have leveraged my ability to talk to people. Twitter, look at Twitter. Um, Donald Trump has understood the political power of a device where you can talk directly to people. You don't have to talk to CNN or, or Financial Times. You can tell them basically to fuck, shut up, get out of here. And then he's Twitters directly to 68 million followers. Uh, yes. Well, you could argue if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um. Well, that's another story. <laughs> it could be a great human mistake. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Too early to say. Maybe we'll know in two or three or four years. I don't know. But he's doing it, and it could be a mistake. It would be interesting to see how it would turn out if we could simulate a world in which an algorithm was president or yes. ran government. Or an algorithm would be a member of the board of directors of a company. Oh, I, th I think we'll definitely see that pretty soon. It's not as kind of risky, but I mean, obviously, you could probably simulate these things before. Well, you can create companies without people, DAOs. They are called DAOs, Distributed Autonomous Organization. And a distributed autonomous organization is three Tesla cars mm -hmm. that go to Gare de Moe at 7 o'clock this morning to pick some people up alone, self-driving. And then they pick some people up, drive them to the center of Oslo. Then they go and find some electricity and pay for the electricity. Then they go back to Gare de Moe and then they operate here. And it's basically a, a company without any human beings that is just there to do what they are expected to do within a certain frame. Because those cars will not start to grow flowers or something like that, probably. <laughs> no. No, probably uh, not. Not yet. Not yet. Not but they yet, will do least. what they are expected to do. Go to Gardaboo and pick some people up, buy some electricity, send the money to you and me because we own them. Because they're not self-owning yet. You and I will own them. Just like we own an animal. Hmm. 
Okay, yeah, so I could definitely discuss this forever, but yes. I need to go back to the script. I have a few questions that I actually have prepared and I want to ask you, but, yes. uh, but you are uh, almost a, f- a philosopher as well. Uh, so I want to quote an interview with you that I read. Uh, you wrote that, no, you said that what companies sell and what their customers buy are two different things. Therefore, every once in a while, it is wise to place yourself in the shoes of your customers and ask the question, what are they really buying? The answer, 99 times out of 100, is that is not what you think that you are selling. And I, I fully agree with what you're saying because I drink Red Bull, not because I think that they are, will make me fly or give me wings. I drink it because it gives me this extra psychological boost and basically it's just sugar water. Can you tell me what this means and why this is so important for companies, especially going into the future, differentiating themselves also in terms of values and selling this purpose? Well, let's see if we can if I can answer this properly. Number one, uh, the reason for why we end up in this situation that, that what we sell and what people buy is two different things is because we lie nonstop. Uh, human beings lie. Machines don't lie, but human beings lie. And we lie to ourselves and we lie to the rest of the world and we do that nonstop. Per definition, we do that nonstop. Because we don't know in many cases why we do the thing that we do. There are many, many experiments conducted on this. There are some really kinky ones at Harvard where they were looking into, you know, when when um, nylon stockings and, th- and things like that, because men buy that as a gift for their wives. The wives buy it for one reason, the men buy it for another reason, and the supplier think that they supply it for a completely different third reason. It's a complete mess. <laughs> and people lie because it why? Because it has a little bit to do with sex there somewhere, you know, that it could be sexy or it's perceived to be sexy. And then you start lying immediately. You go like, well, I think it's aesthetical and I think it's, uh, <laughs> and it's warm <laughs> and all sorts of crap without, a load of crap actually, without saying what it is. I find it extremely sexy uh, under certain conditions. People don't answer that. Huh. They don't. They go like, well, it's very functional when you travel. And yeah, 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 of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, so what do companies do? I mean, how do you figure out what it is that you're selling without, uh, without that being what you're actually selling? Because, you know, the, the trip trap chair invented here in Norway by Peter Opswick, 1972. Trip trap chair? I mean, yeah, the trip trap stool? The trip trap stool, invented here in Norway by a Norwegian industrial designer. It's a friend of mine. When he created the chair, he got his first child. Why did he create the chair? He created the chair because he had a grand idea, a big idea. The big idea was children, maybe children, are human beings. Wow, wow, big thought, 1972. (laughs) Now, if they are uh, human beings, they should sit at the same level as a grown-up and look into the grown-up's eyes talk to each other, have a meal together. Very progressive idea at that time that you eat together with your children and that they are human beings. Today, here in the the Nordic countries, we go like, yes, that's natural. It was not. You can go to France today, the French countryside, you don't have dinner with your children. Of course not. They eat separate from the parents. Mother and father smoke and discuss Sartre and relax, you know, with a glass of wine. So what Peter created was a device to bring 
people together, a very democratic device. It's a grand idea that he has. And many people buy a chair, just a children's chair. They, they don't care about any grand idea or children are human beings or anything like that. They buy a chair. And there you see the difference between the creator that had his grand, 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 grand idea <laughs> and the buyer out there in, I don't know, countryside of Austria that go like, I need a children's chair. Well, we have the trip trap. Yeah, let's have two. So how important is it for brands to just like communicate that vision then of what they're actually selling? So in terms of like, oh, include children as human beings. I mean, is that because it seems like a lot of people do also buy or I would think that things. people, yeah, but or not just things, but they, they buy them for reasons. Like the reason I buy Red Bull, for example, like I'm not buying it because it's really, really tasty. I'm buying it because of this, you know, feeling Kick. of, yeah, flying or it, it has a cool brand or something like that. Yes. All of the above, maybe. Yeah. So and I it's guess, a mix. Well, I know that uh, you have um, you have a flight that you have to catch, so we are going to uh, round this up. But yesterday, you told me, you can ask me anything. Yes, you can. Yes. And then I wanted to ask you, in your dream world, what would I ask you right now? You would ask me why capitalism will survive and why we need companies at all. Why will capitalism survive and why do we need companies at all? Capitalism is heavily criticized, as you know, every now and then in politics and around the dinner table. The, the short answer is there is no alternative. There is no competitor. We have nothing there to offer you. If you don't like capitalism, well, probably another planet, because now this is a planet of capitalism. It's a flying bazaar. That's what the world is. Number two, we will have companies for the simple reason that a successful company, IKEA, any successful company, solve a human problem. They provide an answer to a human problem. Sweden built one million apartments in less than five years in the 60s. That was a political decision to do that. One million apartments in five years, can you imagine? Then you need a lot of furniture. Then there was a person in the south of Sweden. Oh, I think I should... They have to be cheap. Um, they can't be as expensive because if then one million people cannot afford that at the same time, expensive furniture. He solved a problem, provided an answer, and then success came. This is the whole thing with a successful company, to provide an answer to a question that many people happened to have, and they didn't even know that they had that question, iPhone. Hmm. Now we're going to wrap up, for real, because I can see uh, in your eyes that you have to leave. But, okay, three quick questions. Yes. If you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would you tell Hjell as 20? Mm. Study hard, it doesn't matter what you study, number one. <laughs> okay. It doesn't matter, archaeology, philosophy, anything. Mm -hmm. Because learning how, how to learn is more important than what you learn. Exactly, I agree. So that would be one mm -hmm. piece of advice. You said mm -hmm. three, didn't you? I, uh, you, can, you can give how many pieces of advice you just want to. <laughs> you choose. But that was one. Uh, number two... Um, don't be afraid of um, other cultures, other human beings, anything. If it exists, it's natural and normal and human. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. It's very simple. Anything human beings do is a part of being human. It's normal. Mm, that's a kind of comforting thought. Isn't We're it? We're all so weird. It's, pretty, it's weird and cool at the same time. Yeah. 
And I would have offered that piece of advice to myself at, at the age of 20 mm. to, to get that insight a little bit earlier. I think that's an insight we should all give to our kids because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to know that weird is normal uh, and good. Because we do it, and since we do it, it's human. Exactly. Otherwise, it could, we couldn't do it. So to be queer, to be gay, to be lesbian, to be anything is human and normal because we can do it. And since we do it, it's human and normal. What's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast today is two comedians, actually. Uh, Swedish comedians that philosophize on society, primarily. And they do it because they are comedians, which means that they reflect on Sweden, politics, Brexit, the European Union, anything. But it's a lot of fun. Mm. It's a shipload of fun. So you laugh and learn. I love it. Where should people go to follow you? If they want to learn more about uh, Kjell Nordström and follow you online, are you are you a social media person? Are you on LinkedIn or no, Instagram? I'm on I'm on all the platforms. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. Basically anywhere. But I do not regularly produce content for the simple reason of work specialization. I prefer focusing on the thinking component rather than the doing. Thank you so much for all your thinking and doing and communicating and inspiring us right uh, right here today. Thank you for joining the podcast, Hjell. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more interesting insights on technology, leadership and sustainability with experts from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness.